Hey, Julie. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the Local Environment Heroes podcast. Excited to be here. Yes, me too. This is episode two. Episode two and our first guest. (gasps) Very excited. He's going to walk through the door any moment. (laughs) Yes, and I'm very excited because we've got Bob Costanza. Yeah. Now, you've got an interesting story about Bob Costanza. When we were talking about who we wanted to have on the show... I'd mentioned Bob Costanza and you jumped in straight away and went, oh, yes, he yes. totally changed your life, I believe. Well, he changed the way I thought about things. I um, originally studied economics and understood that very well. And I came to ANU to do my master's in environmental management. And one of my first courses was ecological economics with Bob. And it just threw everything on its head. It made me straight away. I just thought, ah, oh. so ecological on, economics. Yeah, st- stop for a second. Tell me what <laughs> ecological economics is. So it's... In our, so we use GDP, which Bob will talk a lot about, I'm sure, as our gross domestic product. Gross domestic product. So it's only money. It's it's only yeah. the money that we get for selling stuff, um, and that's our financial capital. So ecological. And that's economics. the thing on the end of ABC News when they do the financial report. They totally. go and GDP is yeah. blah. It either went up or it went down. Apart from that, it means pretty much nothing to you and me, right. as far as I'm concerned, unless you're. Um, I don't know, uh, <laughs> in, in big in exports. But so the, the idea of ecological economics was valuing other types of capital as much as financial, particularly natural capital and social capital. So natural capital is our natural environment and all the things around us that we need to survive, that we need to live. But they're also the inputs for a lot of the things that we sell, right? And, and we so don't measure that. We don't measure the loss of that or the cost of damaging that to get um the money that we you know that we get for our gross domestic uh our gdp (laughs) um but yeah so it was about really looking at natural capital social capital as well as financial capital and the way that he made me understand that was um and i'll ask him about this when we interview him but was with valuing our ecosystems and there was this um one of the first articles i read of his in his course was about They'd, uh, they'd valued uh, a bunch of, a handful of, maybe a bit more than a dozen of ecosystems in the States, big ecosystems, and they'd figured this number of trillions and trillions of dollars, 33 trillion or something crazy, this amount of money that these things were worth. And that seems quite abstract, but when you think about, say, a wetland as a way of managing storm control or hurricane control, as it might be in the States, when that wetland's there, the damage from the hurricane is a lot less. And so that's what they were trying to measure is... Putting a dollar value on our our natural environment, to, not so that we can sell it, yeah, but so ask, that we can yeah. incorporate it yeah. into our current way. Because at the moment, so we it's can worth actually zero. value it. Yes, right yeah, now we yeah. have zero value for it, and so that it is seems tricky. Weird. It is weird, isn't it? We call it well. We we stick to very traditional classical economics, and that's a externality. Yeah. So it's not part of the model. The damage that's done to the environment isn't valued in the end product, and I guess. That's what ecological economics is trying to say. Not so we can sell the wetland. Yeah. It's so, you know, when you're filling up your car with petrol and it's quite expensive at the moment, um, but if it was to include the cost of the environmental damage that yeah. was done to get that petrol, it will be a hell of a lot more, more expensive. And I guess that's what ecological economics is about. The real price includes the, 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 those negative externalities. So he taught you all about this. I sat there as a student up there in Crawford School and soaked it all in. And um, yeah, it just, um, I was mesmerized. Um, and of course, there are problems of placing dollar values on our natural. And it's, it's a complex thing, but he just kept shooting through to this simple idea of that unless we, it's a communication thing. Yeah. Unless we can communicate to our governments and our leaders and the people making the big decisions, 
that this stuff is as has a value and that is yeah. important to us, then we just keep going the same way we're going, right? But I think it's to communicating it to an individual level. Because I, so my thinking, and I was thinking, why is it that Bob, I really wanted Bob on this show. Um, like, I, as I said in episode one, like I feel sometimes, actually a lot of the time, an imposter to the environmental cause and the environmental movement because I feel that I am late to the party, like kind of turned off the party and didn't bring champagne. <laughs> Good, bad guest. So I came and, but after the bushfires, like I've still come along. So at least I'm at the party, I guess. Yep. But after the bushfires last year, um, I remember I became quite... Um, uh, well, depressed and then also quite um, intensely focused on trees and like why do trees exist and what, what's their right to exist? Do they only exist because I value that tree existing or does it have a right to exist without me valuing that tree? And so I went through this philosophical debate, which I'm sure has happened millions for millions of years and people have spoken about their, the value you place on nature irrespective of the value it offers you. And my takeaway message after writing this long thing about trees was that if we start seeing trees as things that exist not because of us but almost in spite of us, then there's no and, and that there's no guarantee that they'll always be here for us. Then maybe we might give them the respect that they deserve. Yeah. Like trees deserve so much. Oh my God, trees are freaking amazing. That's like, pretty much the basis amazing. of everything. Well, so yeah, and so we have to care for the trees we have around us. And so like I'd kind of been thinking about that, and around the same time. I've been doing a bit of work in my day job on thinking about this concept of well-being, which again, I hadn't really come across before and trying to understand what it is we measure, what we're not measuring, what we're missing out on, what is a good life and how the tree fits into it. So all of these things were coming together and it just ended up that everything I was looking at, all these roads were leading to this guy called Bob Costanza, who is the godfather in this space Um, and so I was totally excited to have him on because I really really wanted to talk to him more about this concept of value and importance and life and better and what does all of this what does all of this mean Ryan yeah what does it all mean (laughs) well it's crazy isn't it it's Bob's such a great guest because it's not just he's not just focused on one thing it's everything it's it's inequality as well as um, environment, it's all these things. One of his papers I was reading just before said something like, and I've heard this before, but every time it just floors me. It's like 26 individuals are responsible for half of the wealth yeah. of the world, something like that. And um, how could they possibly be making good decisions for the rest of us with all that power? And um, so, yeah, um, Bob Costanza just brings all those things together really simply in the, in the word of, of well-being and the idea of that we should look at how our well-being is progressing rather than how much money we have in the bank as a nation, which is, I guess, that GDP idea. Um, So he's an American-Australian professor of public policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. Um, He's a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia and a full member of the Club of Rome. Um, But more than that, he's the inventor oh he coined the term um with herman daly ecological economics so he actually came up with this stuff amazing yeah. amazing we get to speak to him i think excited. we also need to mention that he's editor-in-chief of the anthropocene review um senior research fellow at the stockholm resilience center 
Um, and he's all about systems ecology, ecological economics, um, environmental policy, um, institutions, systems thinking. And so hopefully he's mm. going to talk to us about what all of this means and unpack it for us. Yes, um, the Solutions Journal is a favourite of mine and I'm hoping he's going to talk to us about some solutions today because we've got lots of problems, don't we, Julian? Yeah. We're looking to these heroes and leaders to, to ask them what the solutions are and, and how we're going to move forward. Let's bring him on. Local environment heroes Saving the trees and the bees And doing it daily So, Bob, tell us a little bit about your background. My background. Well, <laughs> depends on how far back you want to go, but one interesting tidbit is where I was born, Yeah. which was in a little town in Pennsylvania called Denora. And it's actually quite an infamous little town because it was the site of the first case of fatal air pollution in the United States. In 1948, <clears throat> they had a temperature inversion. It was a little steel mill town. My father worked in the steel mill. Uh, they had a temperature inversion that lasted over a week, and the steel mill just kept cranking out fumes and just filled up the valley, you know, with this smog, this yeah. toxic smog. So <laughs> 20 people died. My mother had a miscarriage as a result of that. Oh, uh, wow. And uh, I think it had some influence on my <laughs> perspective on life. I was not born yet. Uh -huh. Okay. So um, I was born two years later. Uh, and gradually the town kind of shut down because of the lawsuits and everything. And it was really the beginning of the, uh, the Clean Air Act movement. That incident, an incident uh, a few years later in London, uh, the L.A. smog, you know, all of that contributed to uh, the Clean Air Act and, and, you know, the environmental movement really getting started. Um, and as a result, we moved to Florida. Uh, so To get uh, clean air. To get clean air. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a, l a little cleaner there. But, uh, but yeah, <clears throat> it was an interesting um, uh, uh, phenomena, I guess, uh, that, that really exemplified, I think, uh, what was happening uh, at the start of the Great Acceleration, as it's been called, and the Anthropocene. Epic, you know, can so you can you just define those terms for us? Because some people <laughs> listening might not know what the Great Acceleration is. Um, the Great Acceleration is is uh, what Will Steffen has termed, uh, you know, the period right after World War II, when <clears throat> economies around the world started to really take off. You know, and that that meant GDP was growing much faster than it had been, and and population was growing much faster, and also the, the environmental impacts from from all of these activities uh, were growing much faster. Uh, than, than they had been. Uh, so, and the, the Anthropocene uh, was a term uh, coined to, to, to reflect the fact that humans are now sort of a major influence on the functioning on the, of the biophysical uh, planet, uh, you know, with climate change, with uh, pollution of various kinds. I was a co-author on a piece back in 2009 with Will Steffen and Johan Rockström um, about planetary boundaries. And the idea there was that we are approaching, if not exceeding, nine different global environmental or planetary boundaries, uh, which, which could lead to, to major disruption in our life support system. And so the Anthropocene is that period when we're having those kinds of, of influences. And it uh, officially, uh, it's, being, it's being debated now in the geological community, like when did the Anthropocene as an official geologic epoch start? And uh, they're, they're pegging it around 1950 or so, which is the year I was born. So I'm a child of the Anthropocene. Yeah, wow. Um, I just <laughs> That's need my to, background. <laughs> I just need to point out quickly that for those of you who don't know that 
Netflix has just launched a new documentary on breaking boundaries with Johan Rockström, um, right, right. David so that, Attenborough. That whole idea now is really, mm. I think, getting a lot of, of good public attention. Yeah. And and the fact, the the underlying fact is, you know, there are uh, biophysical boundaries. We cannot continue to grow uh, our economy, our economic subsystem, and recognizing that it's a subsystem, it's not a separate system. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> can't continue to grow indefinitely you know, on a finite planet. So we have to come to terms uh, with that. We have to recognize that in the Anthropocene, we are, we are even more interconnected, uh, you know, with our life support system, uh, with our cultures, with our societies, than we have, have ever been. And so we have to start understanding the whole system as an interconnected whole and managing it in that way. And that's what ecological economics is all about. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I just want to go back a second because like, there was a lot of information in that, which was awesome. But you said that um, this event, um, the, the terrible event with air pollution, um, really is what made you interested or that's kind of the beginning of your journey in ecological economics and needing to understand what's going on in the world. The fact that you weren't born when that happened really <laughs> intrigues me because clearly then it must have had a massive impact on your family. And so you've grown up in a family that has been really interested or compelled to understand or has supported you in your journey to understand more about what's going on in the world. Is that is that what happened? In a way, I think there was always this conflict because, you know, people... Uh, most of the people in the town were employed directly or indirectly in the steel mill. That that was a steel mill town, and so they saw this air pollution, you know, as a sign of progress and employment and and et cetera. And I think that's the dilemma that we've been facing ever since. You know, I mean, we do need to produce and consume things, but we don't need to produce the negative side effects of of that consumption and production, and we don't need to put, consume and produce more things than we really need. You know, so. Uh, I think that's the, the dilemma that we're in now. Um, you know, at the time, in the post-World War II period, I think built capital, consumption, production, you know, were the limiting factor to improving people's lives uh, and rebuilding after the war. And we've sort of gotten stuck in that mode of operation. We're kind of addicted to that way of thinking now. And we've, we've forgotten or haven't, haven't adequately incorporated knowledge of the negative side effects. We've done some work on, you know, well, uh, GDP, you know, growth, is what's driving a lot of policies still around the world. And, and you know, GDP was never designed as a measure of, of economic progress or, or well-being. It only measures income, you know, and it measures a lot of income that we probably should be, uh, should not be having. Uh, so <clears throat> it, neg it measures negative as well as positive things. And we've done work on alternatives to GDP to try to get beyond that. And I think there's a growing consensus that, that we need to get beyond GDP as a, as a major policy goal. So one example is the genuine progress indicator, which takes into account um, inequality and says that if you're measuring welfare and not just income, you gotta, you gotta you know, consider how that income is distributed. Uh, and we know that inequality has a big impact on social well-being, on social capital formation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's a key factor. That's, that's also getting a lot more attention these mm. days, fortunately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it also, you know, measures uh, environmental impacts and costs, you know, the costs of air pollution and water pollution and climate change, et cetera. And when you apply that indicator, you see that in the U.S. and many countries, and in fact globally, uh, we haven't been making genuine progress since, since the 80s or so. You know, income inequality has been going up since then, environmental uh, destruction and, and depletion of natural capital and, you know, approaching our planetary boundaries has been going up 
So those net out any positive effects from GDP growth, and we're basically, you know, uh, uh, in a in a recession, if you will, of, of well-being. So and have progress been for, have been for quite a while. So I think that's that's our fundamental problem. How do we re reexamine our poli- our primary goals? How do we move to away from just GDP and production and consumption and towards overall well-being, the well-being of people, the well-being of the rest of nature, of the, the planet, uh, and how do we understand the sustainability of that well-being as well. And so for you, that's progress. Like progress is... Progress is sustainable well-being. well-being. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the fundamental shift that, that has to be made primarily uh, before we can make progress on on all of the other problems, yeah. like climate change, like inequality, et cetera. We have to so first of all is, recognize. this is the number one thing. Yeah. Mm. How would we measure uh, well-being? well-being. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mentioned the genuine progress indicator. That's, that's one way. Uh, <laughs> there are things, uh, there's also been a lot of work on s- just surveying people's subjective well-being. You know, mm. they have surveys around the world in all countries, and they ask people, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how, oh, all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life? Uh, these days, <clears throat> and uh, they they range, you know, on a national average from, you know, seven point eight or so down to three or so, and so uh, that's one way of getting at it. I mean, that has a lot of problems as well. Uh, th- when you compare across countries, there are cultural differences in how people will answer that question. Even when you compare within countries, you know, people's personality affects how they're going to answer that mm. question. Uh, but we've been doing a lot of research on on just that. You know, how what affects people's subjective well-being. And also the problems with that are that that um, <clears throat> it's individuals talking about their individual well-being. Mm. It's not them thinking of themselves as a member of society, as a member of the planet, you know. And so you have to go beyond that as well. It's not the only the only measure, but it's one one key feature because you do want uh, to improve people's sense of life life satisfaction at the individual scale. How do you do that? I think part of it is you have to protect the well-being of the planet. You yeah. have to protect the well-being of society because that affects people's well-being as well. And how do you measure those other components? Um, there's another approach is uh, uh, there are various kinds of indices that have been put together with different factors, including life satisfaction and, and income and <clears throat> you know uh, civic engagement. There's the OECD Better Life Index you probably heard about as one of the more recent ones in which Australia ranks very high, actually, <laughs> in the Better, Better Life Index. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they've done a nice job with that, uh, showing how those different factors are weighted differently. And you can go into their website and change the weights, you know, that, and see how that changes the rankings. Uh, but of course, the problem with that approach is that everybody has their own subjective, you know, weightings for those factors. And how yeah. do you put them all together? And how do the indicators work? So one example uh, there is, you know, for civic engagement, the indicator that they use is uh, percentage of the population that votes in elections. Australia does really well on that that indicator. Why? It's <laughs> mandatory. <laughs> right, yeah. It's mandatory. Yeah. Uh, other countries, it's not mandatory. They don't do so well. So does that? But really, that's also really skewed because the percentage of population, like if you're not allowed to vote until you're over a certain age, and you have a very young population. Like I think it, I think it's the percentage of the voting age that, population right, yeah. that that actually votes. What about how does this link then? Doesn't Cam- Canberra's just released a um, well-being framework? Does this does this counter or is this addressing some of what you'd like to see happen? It is, and I think I think a lot of places there are, there are literally hundreds, if if not <laughs> more than that, of different um, you know initiatives uh, towards measuring well-being more uh, more adequately. 
than, than we have been doing and measuring it at different scales as mm -hmm. well, you know, at the community scale, at the, at the state scale, at the national scale, at the global scale. Um, I think the, the, um, <clears throat> the challenge right now is really building broad consensus about what we mean by well-being and how to measure it. I think that's the missing piece right now. Uh, and you know, would you and build that consensus in Canberra or would you want that consensus in Australia or you think that's still going to happen at a global stage? I think ultimately we need a global consensus that recognizes that um, there can be differences at different scales in, in what you measure and how you measure it. Uh, <clears throat> but I think ultimately we need something that's a broad consensus as in a, equivalent to the broad consensus that was developed about GDP. I mean, GDP was not, you know, this is not magic. It's not uh, something that's, it's not a, a, a natural feature. It's something that we invented, you know, back in the 30s and <clears throat> really institutionalized in 1944 at the Brenton Woods Conference. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you know, when all of the allied powers came together and, you know, said, okay, we need the, the World Bank and the IMF and, and GDP is going to be our, you know, sort of measure of, of economic activity and, and sort of, uh, <coughs> required really that all countries in the world uh, estimate their their GDP, and we've been stuck on that. Uh, so ever why since did that? Why did it become the de facto sole measure of progress? How did that happen from simply measuring economic wealth to then saying actually this is the one thing <coughs> that matters? Well, I think it's it's because in that post-war period it was um, you know a limiting factor in improving people's well-being. Uh, so so it, it made sense. And also, I think you could argue that GDP estimation, you know, was was really important in the Allies winning World War II, uh, because it was, you know, how do we understand the economy, you know, and all of the things that are necessary for production and consumption, and how do we build all these planes and tanks and ships and stuff, and you know, so overcoming those obstacles, World War II was really a, you know, all-out economic warfare. Whoever could produce the most weapons, <laughs> the yeah. fastest. Yeah. Uh, eventually won and so you could argue that that was critical in that in that regard and so uh, <clears throat> but we're we've sort of gotten addicted to it uh, over time it was working it was working it was working and you know we forgot to realize what the the negative side effects were or take them into account mm -hmm. so one of the things we're working on now is thinking of this problem as an addiction you know we mm -hmm. are as a society addicted to this growth at all cost economic uh, system with all of its implications and its subtle feedbacks and, and reinforcements, uh, <clears throat> you know, and like and like a drug addiction, you know, <laughs> I think I think we're beginning to realize that uh, that has really negative, you know, long-term side effects. But it's really hard to change things and to stop doing what we're doing because there are these positive short-term uh, reinforcements. So we wrote a paper recently looking at well, what works at the individual scale? What are the therapies that work at the individual scale to overcome addiction, and how can we apply those at the societal scale? Yeah, and fascinating. One, one and that can seems, you? and one that seems to be quite effective is something called motivational interviewing, which is instead of confronting the addict with their problems, which usually gets a you know denial kind of reaction. Uh, <clears throat> same thing we're getting you know with society. If we just confront society with the problems that we're we're bringing up. Uh, instead of doing that, um, you engage the addict in a conversation about their life goals, about what, what do they want to achieve with their life. You know, take them out of the present into the future and say, what, you know, what do you want to achieve? And once you've established that clearly, then that can motivate them to change their behavior in order to achieve those, those goals. Seems so, so if we were to apply it here, Ryan, <laughs> if I was to say, um, Ryan, the world is just falling apart and there's fires everywhere and it's terrible. What are you going to do about it? You're saying that's not the way to approach it. Instead, I should say, 
Ryan, tell me about the future you want to see in 2030. Yes. What's the future you want to see, Ryan? The future I want to see. I think yeah. we covered that last podcast. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. But um, I guess in this context, it would make a lot more sense for me if we valued our environment, our societal well-being, which is, I think, a lot what Bob's talking about. But I think that's a big shift for us. We're very focused in Australia on GDP as a measure of growth. And I'm wondering what it might look like in other nations where I know they've made a bit more progress on using well-being um, as an indicator. Right. Or Bhutan, like doesn't Bhutan measure happiness? Gross national happiness. Gross? Okay, is so is that? <clears throat> and there is the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. Tell us uh, about that. Which is a group that's been established to bring together uh, really all of the disparate groups that I think are, are all headed in the same direction, but using different language, different terms. So they don't know about each other. different groups around the world. Around the world. Right. So it's, it's intended to be a network of networks. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> to say that, in fact, uh, we all want, you know, an, a, a society that's, that's based on sustainable well-being. Um, <clears throat> I think that's a general consensus among, among all of these groups. They say it in different ways, but, but the, the point of we all is to sort of bring them together uh, and, and try to move that agenda uh, forward and, to, and have people recognize around the world that that probably is the consensus of people around the world. If you really, if you really yeah. <clears throat> surveyed them adequately, I think you'd find that the majority of people, we did some survey work in Australia around these, these topics, and, and that, in fact, is, you know, people do prefer that future, the sustainable well-being future over business as usual, over other, other alternatives. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and there's a subset of, of we all that, that has to do with governments that are establishing their, their credentials as well-being governments, led by Nicola Sturgeon and, uh, and in Scotland. She's the first minister of Scotland. And uh, <clears throat> including New Zealand and Iceland and Finland and uh, <clears throat> there's a few others that are that are now joining. I think Wales has joined. You know, <clears throat> um, Costa Rica is sort of on the table. I think that the agenda there is how do we get countries off of this GDP, you know, mindless pursuit of GDP mm. and towards uh, a sort of more nuanced approach to to what to well-being. Uh, you know, New Zealand's well-being budget I think is a good a good yeah. first step in that direction. Uh, so there is there is a lot of movement, and I think the population uh, up around the world would really support that. Mm. Uh, so <clears throat> I'm I'm excited about how that that will hopefully uh, turn out. Yeah, so that would lead ultimately to us making decisions that are good for the environment as well as our hip pocket as a nation, rather than forgetting about those negative externalities and just looking at the bottom line. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, and um and that's kind of I was first introduced to your work, um in the with the term ecological economics. And um, on the cover of Nature magazine, the, the value, I think it was in the trillions, I forget the number now, maybe you can fill me in, but that we would value our natural ecosystems in, term, in our economic terms. Um, can you tell me a bit about that and, and why that was so important? So that was a paper we did back in 1997 uh, where we tried to uh, estimate with a capital E <laughs> the value of 17 different ecosystem services, you know, and they range from climate uh, regulation to flood protection to, you know, uh, provisioning services like food and water to uh, aesthetic, um, you know, and recreational amenities. So 17 different different services uh, <clears throat> and tried to estimate their equivalent value, you know, in, in dollar terms as a, as a way of communicating that. You know, so how much are they, are they worth? Um, <clears throat> and we came up with a number around thirty three trillion dollars a wow. year. Much oh, larger, yeah. much larger than global GDP at the yeah, time, yeah. and that and that value has uh, well, the estimate of that value has increased, 
uh, but but we're still depleting those natural capital assets. So we're losing uh, <clears throat> we're losing forests, we're losing wetlands. You know, we're desertifying many many areas. And so since 1997, we did an update more recently that showed that we're losing about 20 trillion dollars a year of those those services. You got to adjust for the uh, the year of the of the uh, of the dollars as well. But but still, we're you know we're depleting our natural capital assets and the value of those assets. And it's it's now time to turn that around. I mean, we are now in the UN decade of ecological restoration. You know, so I think we can uh, turn turn that curve around and uh, and and <clears throat> get back on a positive trend towards reestablishing you know many of our our uh, important ecosystems and the the services that they provide. How? How? <laughs> well, like you seem remarkably <laughs> upbeat and positive here for someone who's there's been working. Re- on well, this first, issue I for think a while. the first step really is getting back to this idea of changing our goal yeah. to sustainable well-being. Right. You know, once we've done that, and we're not so concerned about, you know, just generating more GDP all yeah. the time, and you know, any any production and consumption that we do do, we make sure it's inclusive and and shared and is not is not depleting natural capital in any way. Uh, and then we could put our efforts into regenerative agriculture. We could put our efforts into, you know, reforestation. Uh, we could put our efforts into, you know, reestablishing uh, ecosystems where they have been. There's a project in Africa called the Great Green Wall you may have heard of. You know, so replanting trees all along the, the, the southern border of the Sahara uh, <coughs> to, to reestablish, you know, to, to prevent and reverse uh, desertification. So I think... Um, you know, in China, there's the Los Plateau uh, replanting. Uh, so I think there's a, a lot of effort in, you know, natural capital solutions, as they're, as they're sometimes called. Mm-hmm. And we've done some estimates on, you know, the cost benefit <laughs> of those kinds of solutions. And it's, and it's much, much better than, than uh, the sort of technical solutions. For example, um, <clears throat> actually, we have a paper in review now about the, the global value of coastal wetlands for storm protection, which is one of these ecosystem services. And, you know, we came up with an estimate of about almost half a trillion dollars a year uh, just for the value of coastal wetlands for storm protection uh, and, and also for dam- both damages and for saving, saving lives. So instead of building seawalls, yeah. you know, along the coast, yeah. we replant mangroves, we reestablish salt marshes, you know, we, uh, <coughs> we, we work with ecological engineering, you know, and nature-based solutions, yeah. uh, which are much more cost-effective because, you know, these coastal wetlands are producing not just storm protection, but all of those other ecosystem services. Well, yeah, the feedback loop, right? Yeah. The well, there's, there's you know, uh, uh, fisheries, habitat, yeah. there's recreation, there's that whole list Multiple of services benefits. that they're, all the co-benefits of doing that. There's mm. carbon sequestration, you know, so, mm. <coughs> so those ecosystems are, highly beneficial for for many different ways whereas a seawall is just you know it's just a seawall <laughs> yeah. um, and and it's going to de- de- uh, depreciate and deteriorate you know relatively quickly compared to compared to natural ecosystems which are self-maintaining and self self-regenerating so i think there's a huge opportunities you know for for that kind of of uh, ecosystem restoration and this is definitely the decade to do it mm-hmm. so how do we get how do we get your message out there how do we get more people well, hopefully that's what you're here for, right? This is true. This is, we will do yeah. our part, correct? Yeah. It seems so obvious to focus on yeah. improving the wetlands rather than building the seawall, I guess is perhaps what Julie's saying. Um, has ecolo- ecological economics been effective in communicating that message or is the, the well-being indicator perhaps that is that a, a step forward from the ecological economics concept? No, I think these are all, you know, interconnected. Like I said, the, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance is trying to, uh, you know, bring together all of those different 
ways of thinking about uh, these systems. And there, there are several that I think are quite you know, uh, simpatico. Uh, you know, the donut economics idea, the, the sort of circular bioeconomy idea, uh, you know, mm. so uh, the steady state economy, the, you know, in China they have, you know, the ecological civilization is, is kind of their, on their agenda. So I think there's lots of these ideas that are, that are really versions of the same ideas um, that we need to think about, <coughs> you know, the well-being of the whole system. We need to understand the contributions of, of natural capital and social capital. And uh, and that that should be our our goal going forward. And I think once we've established that, I think then a lot of these other policy you know reforms uh, will fall into place. Like getting back to the addiction idea, you know, once once you've established with with the addict what they're trying to achieve with their life, then the kind of changes that they need to make are become a little more a little more obvious and are are much more motivated than they were they were before. Yeah. Mm. All right, well, Julie's got something here that you wrote in your 2020 Happy New Year article. Did you want to read that out? <laughs> yeah, so this, I quite like this quote. Um, so, and again, we've kind of covered some of this, but I think it's still it, it's such a great quote. This is where um, you wrote this article in March 2020. Um, right, before so before the pandemic. Before the pandemic, <laughs> but, but after the bushfires. Right, right. But after the bushfires. So you said... Um, and this is where you kind of you're looking forward to you're, you're actually writing the article so it's 2030 looking um, back, 20 right. from your 2030 perspective and you said but the biggest change was a fundamental change in worldview and goals to one that recognized the interdependence of the economy society mm -hmm. and the rest of nature and put the sustainable well-being of the whole interconnected system as the priority we finally realized that the goal was better not necessarily bigger and i think that really sums up everything that you've just been talking to us about doesn't it yeah it's pretty simple isn't it yeah <laughs> totally like you know it's better we want it we want we want better. We all want a, a better life, and 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 we need to understand what that means. I think that's the fundamental thing. Yeah. Too. So, does, what does a better, better life mean for Bob Costanza? <laughs> well, one way we think about it is that we have four basic types of assets that we all are need in order to produce this better better life, and <clears throat> that's our um, you know our sort of uh, built capital assets. So we do need <clears throat> you know production and consumption. We all need to eat. We need to have. But I think there, that is a level of sufficiency, not a, a level of, you know, you, need, you always need more. So you need enough. Uh, <clears throat> there's a Swedish word that I, I like called, uh, it's lagom. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard that term. but nice. <laughs> it And it means, uh, you know, everybody has just enough. Uh, <clears throat> so it's not about, you know, excess. It's not about uh, not in, uh, poverty. It's saying what we really want to achieve with society is for everybody to be good, you know, to have enough stuff. Not too much, not too little. The Goldilocks zone. Uh, <clears throat> so there's there's that. Uh, then there's also our human capital, our individual well-being. You know, so that has to do with your education, with your health. You know, so we all want to have uh, good health and 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 the ability to learn things about the world and to appreciate all the things that do make us make us happy and well-being. Uh, <clears throat> then we want our social capital. You know, all of our interactions with other people, our institutions, you know, our culture, etc. That has to function well as as well. We have to have trust in those institutions uh, so that we can we can all sort of cooperate. I mean, the what the what made humanity <laughs> so successful on planet Earth is our ability to cooperate with each other, not our ability to be individualistic, you know, self-serving, you know, uh, <clears throat> people. It's our ability to cooperate and, and, and to create uh, social, uh, this social capital. 
And finally, our natural capital, you know, everything else in the world that we, that, that we didn't have to build, uh, that, that are free gifts of nature, uh, that, <clears throat> that support our well-being in so many different ways as, we, as we've talked about. So you've got to get the right balance, I think, of those four types of assets. And I think currently, in many places, we're out of balance, you know, mm -hmm. and, <clears throat> and we're sort of depleting our natural and social capital because it's not being counted well and, and appreciated well enough and uh, <clears throat> focusing too much on the built capital. And so I think that's what needs, needs to change. And I think we can create that better life, even in the Anthropocene, <laughs> by recognizing that we want to stay part of the system. Yeah. You know, we don't want to eliminate humanity. We want, we want humanity to continue, but we want it, in order for that to happen, I think we have to recognize the limits of the biosphere. We have to recognize what contributes to our, our well-being in the first place and, and how to build that more sustainable well-being economy. Well, I think we've established that the best way is to decide what we want our future to be and to build backwards from there. Um, we're going to use that to launch into our five questions that we ask every guest. <laughs> and um, the first one I think I already, is... Um, I think I already answered them, but go ahead. <laughs> you did. Um, well, we're excited to hear you talk about it. Into the <laughs> but let's just say... Well, actually, let's focus on right now. Congratulations. You've just been elected president of the world. What is the one change that you would implement first? Well, first of all, it's great that I was elected. <laughs> <laughs> so that means the world has become a democracy globally, <clears throat> which, is, which is a good thing. So I would say that's good. And the first thing I would change is to um, <clears throat> establish you know, sustainable well-being as the goal of, of, uh, of, all, of all countries and cities and communities and, uh, and ar around the world and to begin to <clears throat> implement ways to uh, build a consensus about what that means, how to measure it, not just a, a one-off consensus, but you know, a sort of ongoing process. Because I think that's where the, the uh, academic community can really contribute um, uh, going forward, is understanding what does contribute to well-being and, and its sustainability, and to make sure that that's part of the ongoing process to, that we learn, you know, that it becomes an adaptive management system. Not one that's just you know ideological, you know, yeah. that says this is the way the world should be. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, and given that we're a democracy, we need to have that broad, broad-based deliberation, and that gets back to also establishing what kind of future we want, uh, because I think that's the essence really of what democracy should be about, is to build that broad consensus to say what you know what do we want as a group, as a society, mm. what kind of world do we want and building processes that can, that can actually um, have that discussion. Mm. And I don't think we have those now. Our, our current democracies are, are just based on you know, electing representatives based on short-term you know, policy goals. Yeah, yeah. So a second question, I'm gonna localize this even Do more. Do I get reelected, by the way? <laughs> I, think, I think you will get reelected, by us, totally. <laughs> um, so this one, it's, you've, again, you've gone into this and we'll put up links to your articles and things that people can access where you've spoken about it's 2030 and you've described the world you see around you, but I want it local. So I want you to be standing on the shores of Lake Belly Griffin in 2030, um, looking, I know you're probably looking into the city. What is it that you see around you in Canberra in 2030? Well, you know, I really like Canberra. <laughs> yeah, so do we. Yeah, <laughs> and I think one of the advantages of Canberra is that it is a planned community, and it was planned by you know former couple of former students of Frank Lloyd Wright. One of my my master's degree was actually in architecture, so I'm a big fan of Frank Lloyd Wright and design with nature. And I think that's that's really uh, <clears throat> where we want to continue to go. I guess with Canberra, I guess we could probably do a better better job with that than than we have. 
Uh, but I like the fact that, you know, Canberra has not developed, you know, on the hills, all the, the hills around Canberra, that they've left those in natural areas, and there's so many nice walking paths, and I think the integration of the built and the natural environment, uh, <clears throat> I think they've done a, a, a fairly decent job with that. So I would say continue, <laughs> uh, but <clears throat> don't get trapped into the sort of overdevelopment, um, you know, process that, is, that, is, that a lot of cities, cities have. And also I would say, uh, engage the community more in planning decisions about what the ha what happens next in the in the community. How do you build that deliberative democracy process uh, for urban planning? Uh, so and and uh, <clears throat> yeah. All right. Well, um, you've come on here as one of our environmental heroes. Um, who are yours, Bob? Who are your environmental heroes? Um, there's so many. <laughs> Please. <But> top, <laughs> top five. Top five. <laughs> top five. I don't know. Well, um, <clears throat> one of my one of my heroes is my colleague Herman Daly, who was uh, you know a, a uh, <clears throat> one of the people who sort of got me going down this uh, this path, and uh, one of the few economists I think in the world who uh, who sort of understand this connection, uh, and and you know was a uh, one of the, the co-founders with me of ecological economics. Uh, <clears throat> Let's see. There are a couple of Canberrans I could mention. Maybe that would be good. Yeah, perfect. So uh, Will Stefan also yep. is a, a colleague. I'm not sure if you're going to. Oh, have we've these got people. him down. We've got yep. him down. <laughs> okay, Catherine Trebek. Yeah. She's also a, a co-founder of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so let's see who else. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah. It's such a great, strong academic community. Um, yeah. We're on ANU campus right now. There's some incredible minds working on future solutions here, isn't there? Indeed, yeah. Yeah. No, I think the, there's this new Institute for Climate, Energy, and uh, Disaster Solutions, I think it's called. <coughs> so that, that whole group, I think, is, uh, yeah, is headed in the right direction. Mm. But like I said, I think with the, the, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance recognizes that there are literally you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, if you will, uh, of environmental heroes around the world, mm. uh, <clears throat> they're just not connected and not and not having the influence I think that they uh, that they need to have. But I think that's changing, and hopefully this is this is the decade when it when it does turn around. Yeah, I, and, I, and we we toyed with the word hero a lot actually yeah. because it's not hero isn't someone who's necessarily out there mm. with the biggest name. It's it's anyone who is willing to make a difference in their little pocket of mm -hmm. Canberra wherever it is like I think you know there's so many heroes out there that are doing amazing things that we don't hear about and that was you know another point of starting the podcast so we can hear stories of amazing yeah. people everywhere yeah and maybe that's a, something you should think about too is that that, that terminology you know it comes from this idea that there's you know there's there's one individual who can change yeah, who can change the world and and that even you know permeates the environmental community. We say, well, all you have to do is change your own behavior, you know. And if everybody changed their own behavior, then things would, things would be different. Yeah. And I think that only goes so far because what we really need to change is the system, because that determines people's behavior in in large part. And it's you know it's really impossible, if not difficult, to not if not impossible to change your behavior, you know, out out of context of how that system works. So, you know, changing our fundamental goal to well-being, I think, is, is changing the system. Changing the institutions, though, that go along with that, I think, is, is the work of us working together, you know, through the political process, through, you know, implementing democracy, mm -hmm. et cetera. We've got to change those institutions to, to, to facilitate that movement towards that goal. Mm -hmm. And that's going to take everybody working together, not, 
not uh, and it will take a few people you know who can articulate uh, the ideas i guess but it's going to take people implementing them it's going to take people doing all kinds of different roles within that and it's and it's, it's all part of uh, it's all important mm -hmm. All right, so um, our fourth question is, and I guess it's kind of stuff we've covered a bit more, but I'd like to ask it in the context of, so when we shift towards valuing our natural capital as much as our financial capital, there's going to be some sticky changes, I guess, in Australia. We're very focused on our, you know, our, our coal and our gas and our exports, and if we were to actually value our natural capital there rather than the finance, there'd be there'd be some changes that are going to shake us up, and it's mm -hmm. going to be awkward, perhaps. Um, so, with that hard question in mind, would be, what's your hot tip for the individuals out there to assist this process? <laughs> Well, like I said, I think that process is going to require therapy. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. It, you know, that it, it is difficult to make those kind of changes um, <clears throat> at the individual scale, but, but even more at the societal scale. And so <clears throat> it's, not, uh, it's, it's not so much direct confrontation you know, on, on the problems. It's more how do we build the shared vision of what we want to get to and why movement away from fossil fuels really is, is the, um, the only path to help us get there for example yeah uh, but there are other <clears throat> other things that that need to change as well you know better uh, <clears throat> recognition of the value of social capital and natural capital and all of those things have to have to come into play mm -hmm. so <clears throat> i think i guess my tip would be don't um, it's important to recognize the, uh, the the problems you know it's important to recognize where an addiction is headed and that that it's not sustainable but it's also important to recognize that changing behavior is not quite as simple as just pointing out those problems. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> and it's going to take a more nuanced, you know, more more engaged, more therapeutic kind of approach uh, with society, and to show that these changes are going to make everybody better off. You know, it's not a sacrifice uh, to make yeah. these kind of changes in the end. It's really a sacrifice not to. Yeah. You know, we're going to get stuck where we are, and it's not it's not necessarily going to be a good place going forward. So it's it's really you know we are we all are pursuing uh, this path to a better future, not a bigger future, a better future. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we have to do it together, uh, otherwise it's not going to work. Yeah. So I think that leads quite nicely into the last question. Um, what's your final slogan or your quote or mantra, something that you live by that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? My mantra. <laughs> yeah. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Get up and say, right, Bob, today. <laughs> well, I think you read the quote that, <laughs> that, it's a great that, could, quote. that could qualify as my mantra. Yep. You know, better is not necessarily bigger. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, that, <clears throat> and that we have to, you know, work together uh, to, to figure out what better is. You know, what do we mean by better? And, and, how do, and then how do we get there? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. We feel really um, privileged to have had you um, come in My and talk pleasure. to us. My yeah. pleasure. Yes. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. And yeah, good luck with it. Thanks. Local environment heroes Saving the trees and the bees And doing it daily